Exalt podcast. My name is Christopher Shagnon. And I'm Sophia Hagalani Albal. Today we're joined by Maya Lassila. She is from the Development Studies Department at University of Helsinki, one of our colleagues, peers, and very favorite people to talk to. So Maya, welcome to the show. Thank you. So Maya, could you please tell us a little bit about who you are and why you're interested in extractivisms and alternatives? All right. So I'm a doctoral candidate at the Development Studies Department, and the uh, focus of my dissertation is Arctic extractivism through the lens of mining expansion in Lapland. And uh, I'm particularly interested in the early stages of mining projects and how knowledge of nature is constructed at these times and what are the local responses. And uh, yeah, I've always been interested in the modern nature-human divide and to finding alternatives to that. So if I say extractivisms, what does that mean for you in your work? I would see it as an overall larger theme. It's not only about one thing. It's not only about mining or forestry. It's a larger ontology affecting behind our society, the capitalist society that is very much based on all kinds of extraction. I would see that we need alternatives to the extractive regime, so to speak, because it's harmful now for for humans and other beings and the worlds we inhabit. So we need to discuss also other alternatives to how we can live. Maya, getting to your, your background a bit, I've seen that you've done a lot of research in a lot of different places. How did you get into, how did you become interested in alternatives? Yeah, that was, I think, already a long time ago, uh, since the start of my university studies. Well, my background is so that I've lived in places or my childhood home has been really much in the nature, surrounded by forests. So I've gained this view of being close to nature from my parents, I would say, and from the environments I grew up in. And um, yeah, so then I've been interested in the relations that humans have with the environment. And during my master's thesis, fieldwork in social and cultural anthropology, I then traveled to Polynesia to study local small-scale fishermen and their knowledge of the ocean and the land. And then thinking from the perspective of alternatives, the kind of the how their knowledge presented itself as an alternative to this modernist way of thinking nature as something which is external to humans. And in that place, it kind of manifested in this conservation program that the French had introduced to the island's lagoon. And that was very much external to the way the fishers themselves understood the world. What was this program like? And, and can you give examples of how it was external for them? Because one would think that, you know, a conservation effort, especially if the fisher people are so connected, like you'd think that that would go hand in hand. Well, the area I was in uh, is French Polynesia called officially. And so it's an area colonized by the French still. And uh, the history of colonialism is very much present 
in the lives of people and the present day colonialism. So that's why the the ideas that the Westerners had of what is nature was something totally different. They had divided the space of the lagoon to different segments, uh, which did not kind of follow the traditional holistic understanding of the island and the ocean as one holistic kind of totality. So this idea of external was very much yes connected to colonialism and, and the understanding of what is nature. And in, in the Tahitian language, there is not even a name for nature. That's really interesting. Um, do you think that maybe that is because it's not viewed as something that's apart? It's not its own thing? It's just is? Yeah, I, I think that many peoples in the world maybe don't have uh, a name for a nature, uh, something that is a thing, an object in itself, but rather people might understand or their existence is totally based on interaction with the environment, with the land, with other living beings, not just a human. What about, um, you said that you were in Polynesia for your master's and now you're up in the Arctic. What about here in Finland? Is there a word for nature here? In Finnish, the word is luonto. And uh, I don't know how to explain it in, in English. In a way, this word is also used to describe someone's character, kind of. But it's a bit hard to explain in English, so maybe I won't go into that. <laughs> so it's like multiple natures. It's that nature, but also our own human nature. You know, it's interesting because in English, when I think of nature, I get a very distinct picture that jumps to my head. Um, and maybe part of this is because I grew up in the greater California area. But when I think of nature, what I immediately see is half dome in Yosemite. It's like the very first thing, no matter what, that's what pops to mind. Nature, oh, half dome. And it's interesting because that's such a constructed view of nature. Like that is something that humans have called nature. It's a representation of nature. But is that really nature? I agree with you completely. It's such an interesting thing. Because for me, you know, coming from mountains of upstate New York, when I think of nature, like the first thing that pops to my mind is out in front of my old family fishing camp, like looking out at the river and the mountains and everything like that. And it's a very particular view. And of course, we, we don't necessarily think of cityscapes as being nature, but they do have their own natural flows and rhythms, even if they are heavily influenced by people, it is still a sort of nature and how it is this holistic, all-encompassing thing. Linguistically, it's kind of interesting with Chinese because, well, I mean, you know, Chinese, when it comes down to characters, they're very broad and they encompass a lot of ideas. And so the base character for nature is the same character as Tian, which is also, it means nature, it means sky, it means God. It means the heavens. It can mean the universe in some aspects. Like a traditional way of referring to the world is Tianxia, which is everything all under the heavens. So it's, yeah, this much more holistic view that is very connected. Yeah, even in Finnish, um, I always say one of my very favorite Finnish words is malma, 
which means world. And it's so beautiful because it's constructed of ground, ma, and air, ilma. So ma, ilma, everything. I've always really liked that word. And I think that it plays off of what you were saying about these really holistic views. Yeah, then if we think about Arctic extractivism, the Arctic has been constructed as a wilderness in a sense that uh, it has been thought of perhaps as empty and open for resource extraction through oil and mining, although it's inhabited by indigenous people, Sami here in Finland and Alaska by the native people. So, so yes, then there's again another level how to understand nature and wilderness and talk about them. So we've been talking about nature as an external construct. And in your observations and your experiences, how have you seen that? Have you seen nature as something that's external? I think for me, it has always been in a way problematic. And uh, I felt this quite strongly if I go for a little bit back to the Polynesia experience. I felt quite strongly this expectation of me as a neutral, objective scientist outside the world. And uh, it felt a bit difficult and heavy. And um, this demand of me, of being in the world like that. So at that time, I started to think seriously about plunging more deeply into art, because that's something that always been with me since I was a child and in our family and I have always been making art in some way and somehow going into art that was for me a kind of a solution to find a more inner relation to the world or experience things in a more inner way in contrast to this modern scientist point of view. That's a really fascinating connection and, and a beautiful way to bring out this, this personal experience and really enrich your research. How did you get into this? When was the moment of connection and, and how have you brought this forward? Well, um, towards the end of my master level studies, I then applied to art school. And um, first I got into a professional level school and later to the Academy of Fine Arts, which was a big dream and uh, then graduated as Master of Fine Arts later. And uh, I would see that these kind of two roles I have as researcher and artist, visual artist, they sometimes mix, but not always. But I think uh, on their basis, they are kind of two perspectives to the really same question of how to find meaning in life, either through research or art, how, how to find meaning, how to keep learning endlessly about the world or worlds around us, how to find some kind of a continuity and also go beyond this capitalist society where everything is counted through its monetary value. So find some kind of other meaning. And then, yes, I've pursued my art practice as as painter, and I've also done other art that maybe more explicitly mixes with my research. 
which has been maybe more audiovisual. But yes, I still see that in my mind, these both are part of the same thing, but maybe to the outside, they're not always so evident. Could you tell us a little bit more about your painting and how you use that medium? Sure. Well, uh, painting is quite an existential practice in a way. It's its own kind of way to think, I would say. It's very bodily because it involves bodily movement with the painting in the studio. And um, it's its own kind of knowledge and very slow one, I would say, because it requires a lot of patience to make a painting, a lot of time, and also patience for one who experiences it as a viewer, maybe. And uh, I think in itself, it provides these alternatives, plural alternatives, to the uh, so-called one-world reality, where we find, for example, this human nature divide. So it provides alternatives beyond that, different ways of existing with the world and in resonating with the world. Then there's also, painting is of course very material, so it deals with very material stuff like uh, wet paint or uh, the canvas or the surface where you are painting, but at the same time it's also immaterial, so it allows you to leave the space where the painting is inside the rectangular form maybe and it allows you to make associations and travel freely and openly and uh, it's not only about self-expression it's also about uh, some kind of consciousness or common consciousness or ideas that maybe we share at, at some parts and in some parts we don't and um, yeah I think maybe at this time some critics might say that painting is a really old-fashioned form of art uh, it's meant for a white gallery where it's then sold for millions of dollars maybe but uh, I don't think it's true at all especially from seeing my colleagues who paint and who are maybe living in under the poverty line and the motivation comes from somewhere else. Uh, it's its own relevant language, I would say. Yeah, it's language without words. I think painting is something that's very, very special. Um, one of my, I'm not an artist, just so everybody knows that or at least uh, not in any formal sense. But I think that painting is so special because it allows, or at least what I feel when I look at it, is it really allows a glimpse not only through somebody's eyes, but through their eyes and their mind in a way that's different from photography because photography, you know, it captures like what's there of course, there is a viewpoint with the photography from the photographer, but with painting, it's like you really go into somebody and you see what they're seeing out their eyes. I don't think it's old fashioned. And I think that sometimes, not that I dislike uh, digital art, I, 
actually really like digital art also, but I think that there's something very special about the visceral nature of painting. It's it's transcendent and grounded. So I think that it's really interesting that you're using painting as a medium to bring some of these larger questions about human nature together and giving us um, as viewers a chance to kind of see through your experience. Yeah, it's very much about perception of how how to perceive what you see. And actually with painting, for example, you very often see in a way the perception kind of shatters into so many plural possibilities of seeing. And then that itself, I think, questions the idea of a one modern world or a one knowledge system. So this is a really rich and interesting discussion. And I'm curious to bring in this idea of extractivism because art goes across all cultures. Uh, and there are so many different cultures dealing with extractivism, uh, so many different people. So I'm really curious, have, like, how have you seen uh, different artists and different people like dealing with extractivism in different contexts? And of course, in your own art too. Mm. From an arts perspective, I would say that um, when thinking about art dealing with extractivism, it's not maybe reducible to one piece in a gallery or something that is kind of static, but rather it's a really open-ended, ongoing inquiry, a set of practices. Uh, It intersects with activism and all kinds of research, and it's dealing with power relations art uh, deals with questions of extractivism. It merges documentary, speculative and imaginary ways of thinking, seeing, and uh, of finding these hidden narratives maybe in situations, social contexts, uh, different places, senses of place. So rather than being instrumental to maybe producing information about extractivism and so on. It rather art has self-value in um, thinking of extractivism in many, many different kinds of ways. And with Sophia, we were in November 2019, we were in a Pluriverse Conversations workshop in Kajani where different artists and activists and researchers gathered together to collectively think extractivism and uh, present their work and interventions to the to the topic. Yeah, that was a very enlightening experience and broadened some of my views about how art can interact with questions of extractivism and especially the question of how humans and nature interact. So if there is a human nature divide, where is that divide? What does it look like? Is there even a divide? But yeah, that workshop was hosted by Pluriversal Radio, which we'll put a link to down in the show notes. So if anybody else wants to check out what we saw at that workshop, I know that they have some lovely things up on their website about that particular workshop. 
But for me, one of the most salient points from that workshop was all of the different manifestations and nuances of extractivism and how extractivism as a practice affected so many different life worlds and the different ways in which it affected them. And at that workshop, we saw documentary art, we saw visual art, we saw dance and body art, all looking at these same issues. Yeah, I was especially fascinated by the Vara Collective. The workshop was held in Kajani. Which is in uh, Middle Finland. Yes, and uh, it's also near the Talvivara Terra fame, fame mine that had a huge environmental catastrophe a few years back and it's still going on. So the Vara Collective has been doing documentary theater about the Talvivara mine catastrophe. I think they have interviewed or discussed with people who have experienced firsthand this catastrophe and its impact and then made theater from that. For our listeners, could you tell us a little bit more about this catastrophe? Because uh, a lot of people at home might not have heard of it. Yes, yeah, so the mine is a big, um, is it nickel mine? It is. Yeah. The mine, which is now called Terra Fame, it's, it's owned by the state now, but before it was a private company called Talvivara, and uh, it was very badly planned from the beginning. They have used this biochemical method of dissolving metal from the mustaliuske rock. In English, that's black schist. And in 2011, a huge catastrophe took place where all the contaminated waters flowed into the environment, you know, the nearby uh, water bodies. And... Uh, and this all had sulfuric acid in it and all the industrial yeah, because, byproducts. Because and... from the rock, a natural process in itself is that sulfuric acid dissolves with air and oxygen and then, um, then also turns into sulfate in uh, water. And that also causes the, that the lakes become saltier, their ecologist changes. The recent research has shown that ecological systems of the nearby lakes have dramatically changed or collapsed. And uh, this catastrophe is going on and on. And uh, the Finnish state is at the moment supporting the mine for millions of euros in a year. So the problem is that the process of the sulfuric acid going into the environment will not stop because the rock... Rock is piled in the mining area, and uh, with a natural process, it it comes from these piles. So the Vara Collective has been doing theater and all the other artists in that area too, dealing with the with the catastrophe. That has also people have lost their homes and livelihoods. Fishers cannot fish in the lakes anymore because they are contaminated or people don't buy the fish that has been fished in these lakes. Yeah, and in addition to the Vara Collectivi, we also saw some presentations from some documentary filmmakers who had done work uh, looking at some of the livelihoods that had been lost around this disaster. And yeah, I just, I think that 
it helped me to remember because I come from a, I'm a qualitative researcher, so I do come from a social science perspective, but at the same time, kind of stepping outside of the scientific, taking the scientific hat off and looking at these same questions through an artistic lens and not only seeing the presentation of this comment on extractivism through the artistic lens, but also having uh, a little bit more freedom and leeway to feel the emotions of extractivism. And I think that that's something that art is really able to give to the situation. Um, it's interesting because it links back to what you were saying about your experience in Polynesia and feeling a little bit trapped by the objective scientific role that you were expected to inhabit. And I think that art is a beautiful bridge between that very objective scientific, these are the facts, and the deep emotional uh, response that we can have to these situations of extractivism. Yeah, and both research and art have a really important role uh, in witnessing these kinds of events, whether it is through finding or going to the deep roots of, uh, of a catastrophe and the actual reasons and the political reasons and everything that might be hidden. And then the art also witnessing these same things and also maybe, as, as you said, witnessing the emotional load of and witnessing loss in this time. There's two things that you said that I really appreciate and want to reflect a little bit on, and that's the concept of witnessing and then also loss within these situations, I would take it even not just loss, but I think that like, for example, in the Talivara situation, catastrophe, it's not just loss. It's like an almost unarticulatable grief. And it's not just for the home or the livelihood or the lake or the fish, but for everything all rolled into one and how how does one even begin to grapple with that where's the inroad and i think that um like you were saying art and science as witnesses even if at this exact moment in every situation it can't necessarily be solved but just the act of being able to bear witness, I think, is a step in a direction that allows us to begin to start processing these impacts <laughs> that we as humans have had on the natural world. Yeah, and to add that indigenous peoples around the world have already for generations experienced this loss of their worlds in very tactile ways, very profoundly, I would say, and um, over-generational loss of environments, of place, of home. Yes, so... Um, this kind of leads into something that I wanted to ask you about. How have you seen, or have you seen, in different indigenous places, like, say, with the Sami or, or in Polynesia or other places, indigenous artists dealing with this what kind of ways of expression because i mean of course there are there are traditional artworks and stuff like that i mean how is this being melded together to to tell this holistic story of of change and loss yeah well 
in Finland there is the in Sami the Sami land there is the Suopan terror artist collective that have been very much dealing with the consequences of extractivism and Finland's colonialism on their lands and uh, yeah that's one example there are many others also uh, the Native American Will Wilson has been uh, in his work looking at the legacy of nuclear testing on Navajo land in New Mexico and uh, yes so there are many artists indigenous artists who are who are dealing with these things Thank you so much for sharing those with us. For anybody who's interested to find a little more, we'll find some appropriate links that we can put down in the show notes. For example, about some of the artists we've just mentioned, uh, Pluriversal Radio and of course the Vada Collectivi. So in this uh, larger discussion, I was wondering if you would be willing to share with us um, an artistic intervention that you've done that brings together art and extractivism. Sure. So related to my research on mining in Lapland, I have also used an artistic approach. And uh, I have done research in the Sodankula region regarding the Anglo-American company Sakatti mining project in the conserved Viyankiapa peatland. And uh, related to that, I was filming and recording in the peatland and uh, I was interested in how a more sensorial or visual approach would maybe be something to approach or get closer to the peatland as a more than human environment, as a place of various layers of time and different living beings. So what we did with my partner is that we put the camera, the video camera, inside the small puddles in the peatland, kind of get away from the horizontal, external idea of a landscape and go more literally inside the peatland. And we filmed those puddles and found various beautiful living worlds with all kinds of microscopic creatures. And um, we filmed reindeer herding that's part of the environment there. And uh, yes, and then that was also kind of an a, attempt for me as a researcher in a way to kind of expand idea of what knowledge can be. And does it always have to be textual? It can also be something visual or sensorial or bodily felt. Yes, so to expand the categories of what is research itself also and show a place in a different way also. Yeah, so that was produced a lot of material and then eventually also a short film and a video installation that I also showed in the workshop we had. Yeah, and what does Sakati mean? Sakati is actually a local name from the Viyankiapa peatland. They are the Sakati lakes under which the company has found a, a large scale or discovery. And so they took the name and uh, turned it into the mining project. It's another layer of extractivism, isn't it? Yeah, it seems almost cruel. That film sounds really interesting and really beautiful. And I mean, I wasn't able to make it to the workshop then, but I would really love to see it. Is there somewhere, some way that I could check it out? 
yeah, I can give my email address and then anyone who wants to see it just can mail me and I will send the link. Fantastic. Um, so I was wondering if you could bring it back around to your doctoral research and tell us about how you're doing this integration of art, science, knowledge within the actual doctoral research. Yeah, so this uh, visual research I was doing or visual practice or experimentation or yeah, so I turned it into a one article of my dissertation to talk about uh, how how immersion into making of an image because I was also I was both filming and doing painting small pictures in the peatland. So how immersion into making of an image can actually function as a one type of inquiry, an open one, into modes of being and knowing that are maybe in contrast or different to this external spectator's gaze of the environment. So it's kind of a thought experiment and an open, maybe open article about that. And um, yeah, of how different practices also in, inside the academic field can maybe expand understandings of extractivist processes and environmental change, sensorial and things you do beyond words, maybe. I love, um, of course, right now we're using words as our main communication medium, but I do love the idea, especially within the academic round, of getting beyond just text as knowledge. I completely agree with you, especially going in these ways that go just beyond text and traditional academic articles, which can be very out of reach and out of touch for a lot of people. Using visual mediums can open up to very wide audiences. There's part of me that kind of was like, like, oh, it's actually in some ways this kind of goes back to like the Renaissance because, you know, art and science back then being so interconnected, look like Leonardo da Vinci or something like that. But anyways, that's a whole separate discussion. So, I mean, we, we've been going, and, like, time has absolutely been flying by. Unfortunately, we need to start wrapping things up. But there's always one question that we like to ask our guests to kind of summarize things and bring it together and really get this message out to people. So, for the people listening at home, what can they do if they're interested in, in art and in extractivism, if they want to be more involved uh, in, in any sort of way? Uh, what can they do to, to participate or support? Well, most importantly, I think people should not think that they have to somehow belong into some institution or something, a category of some sort in order to act or create or do research. I mean, people in the Kayan, Kainu region are doing this citizen science taking samples from the water in order to show its contamination. So everyone can do that and everyone can create art and uh, we have to be collective and think collectively and um, yeah, and just do things that that go against this direction 
that is leading us now in into a huge loss of life in so many ways. So yes, we have to be against the loss in whatever way you find possible. And one thing is care, care between each other and in individuals. Thank you so much for that closing thought that we have. Um, now, Maya has already promised that she will give her email address in the show notes for anybody who is interested in getting the link to the Sakati movie. Is there anywhere else that you would like people to find you? Can we link to your website? Sure. I have a, both a researcher website and then the artistic website. Maybe I will combine them somewhere in the future, but they are still separate now. Well, fantastic. We're going to link in the show notes to both sides of Maya's personality and working life. So thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Maya. Thank you again to Maya Lassler for coming on the show and talking with us. Please join us next month when our guest will be Rachel Mazak, who will be talking with us about food systems, sustainability, extractivism in the food industry, and alternatives that range from futuristic to very old school. From my undisclosed socially distant location, I am Christopher Shagdon. On behalf of Sophia Hagelani-Albov, thank you for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll catch you next time.